Mademoiselle Song, recording from my closet in Louisville. And I'm Beth Bennett, recording in my pillow fort as we are staying at home. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 30th, 2020. Coming up, an interview with author and scientist Catherine Donnelly on the FDA's efforts to regulate artisanal raw milk cheeses out of existence. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. We've been hearing a lot lately about antibody, aka serology, testing for the coronavirus. A lot of people are clamoring to get tested, many in the hope that if the results show that they have had the virus, they can go back to work. And in general, then the economy can open back up. To understand why antibody testing won't give us this answer at the present time, you have to know how it works and some of the problems with its use now. Antibodies are proteins that protect us from disease-causing entities like the coronavirus. Every antibody is unique, directed toward a specific structure on a pathogen like the virus. How do they protect us? Well, first, the antibody attaches to the specific site it recognizes on the virus. Once the two are bonded together, then immune system cells are attracted and destroy the virus. It takes an immune system up to two weeks to make the initial blueprint and produce enough of a specific antibody to fight the infection. Imagine having to build a whole factory to produce some product. So you can be infected for a few weeks before an antibody test would be positive. So a positive test means the antibody to the virus is present at a detectable level. Similarly, a negative result means there are no detectable antibodies. Not that there are none at all. Unfortunately, you can get false positives or negatives. A false positive can result if you have an antibody responding to another coronavirus-type protein. There are four similar coronaviruses circulating in the population right now. And, as we've seen, you can get a negative test result even if you are infected, if the test is done before detectable levels of antibody are present. After the infection has been cleared, the body creates a second type of antibody and stockpiles a small supply of these. It takes about a month for these to build up. Then the next time the body is exposed to the same foreign pathogen, it can respond much more strongly and quickly because the requisite antibodies are already present and just need to be scaled up. That factory has already been built, but mothballed. So it just has to be put back online by the immune system. In the case of the coronavirus, no one knows what level of antibodies if any, confers protection against a future infection. And we also don't know how long these antibodies stay in the body. The most common antibody test is called enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. You can see why its common name is ELISA. Here's how it works. The viral protein is placed in a tiny test tube and then the blood sample is added. If antibodies are present in the blood sample, they will bind to the viral protein, just as they do in the body. Then, a second antibody that binds to the first antibody is added. This second antibody is joined to a special enzyme. Now, enzymes are proteins that catalyze or enable a specific chemical reaction. In the case of the ELISA test, the enzyme converts an uncolored molecule, also added to the test tube, to the one that is colored. The color, then, can be read by a computer. 
All of these steps can be done robotically on a large scale so that it's possible to screen a lot of samples at the same time. Well, why aren't these tests more common? First, the FDA, which has to approve all medical tests, has not completed testing of any of the many commercial antibody tests for the coronavirus. The agency has given emergency approval to over 100 tests. That means these tests aren't FDA approved, but the manufacturers agree to follow certain rules when making them. If your you-know-what detector is going off now, you're right. Currently, there isn't much consumer protection for those of us getting an antibody test. Now that you know how the test is done, we can talk about some early results from testing certain study populations. These studies reported that between 2 and 30% of the people tested had already been infected with the virus. These numbers, which range wildly, suggest that confirmed cases are an even smaller fraction of the number of people infected than was originally thought. Also, these results suggest that the majority of infections are so mild people don't know they've been infected. Many of these study results came out in press reports or preprints, meaning they haven't been reviewed by other scientists. The lack of FDA approval for the antibody tests is another problem. You've probably heard about the study of 3,300 people in Santa Clara County near San Francisco. Once those results were corrected for false positives and negatives, they suggested that between 25 and 4% of those people tested had had the virus. This level of infection is too low to support herd immunity. That's the idea that enough people in a population are resistant to a virus so that it won't be able to spread further. What does all this mean for antibody testing? Right now, I wouldn't spend my money. Wait for tests to be validated and approved. Nonetheless, this type of testing will be really valuable and in the near future will give us a better idea as to who has, the de has had the disease and how serious it really is. The study results were reported last week in the journal Science. Trends with big data in the environment. We've all heard about the big data revolution. Very fast processing speeds and large data capabilities have enabled this revolution. Using cloud-based storage, more than a quadrillion, 10 to the 15, calculations per second per $1,000 spent are possible. Three decades ago, one calculation per second was possible for the same expense. These capabilities are crucial for spotting and monitoring environmental trends. Some of the most pressing issues in sustainability require access to these big data. In a report from Nature Communications titled Opportunities for Big Data in Conservation and Sustainability, researchers from groups in Australia, Canada, and the U.S. emphasized the importance of large data sets in spotting trends and underline that it is essential that barriers to accessing derived products in analyzing big data be removed. So here are some examples of where large data sets were used to map out environmental trends, some of which were fairly surprising. For example, ice sheet mass changes in Antarctica, tidal flat changes, tree cover loss, and global fishing watch. Trends, both positive and negative, have emerged from big data. So the Antarctic uh, ice sheet mass loss was much greater than what people thought, and that's from big data. Uh, forest loss in Brazil was decreasing less than people thought between 2000 and 2012, and that is due to progressive legal actions, although the 2019 government has since reversed that trend. 
Um, greening over large expanses in China and India is occurring more than people thought, and that is a result of direct human land management. Increased precipitation in the Tibetan Plateau over the last four decades has resulted in more vegetation greening, and that's um, positive for carbon sequestration, but that also poses some challenges from some of the natural uh, plants there. Large companies are committing to sustainability in their supply chains. So examples are uh, palm oil pledges, uh, sustainably sourced palm oil uh, pledges from Nestle and McDonald's. And there is a need to track the full ch supply chain for these large co corporations. Ultimately, there needs to be a tight coupling of big data analyses and the sustainability agenda to ensure that we are on top of trends and we don't run out of the time and space that we need to save the environment. Catherine Donnelly is professor of nutrition and food science at the University of Vermont. For over 30 years, she's studied the role of bacterial contamination in the dairy industry. In her recent book, Ending the War on Artisan Cheese, she defends the use of raw milk in traditional artisan cheese making. She also exposes the inappropriate entrance of FDA regulation, which has been coordinated by large dairy industry efforts to eliminate small farm artisanal cheese makers. As we're now seeing the government's inappropriate incursion into recommending untested drugs for COVID-19, many federal agencies are overstepping their legitimate bounds. Welcome to the show, Professor Catherine Donnelly, and your book, Ending the War on Artisan Cheese, just came out from Chelsea Green, and you have pieced together a massive amount of information on the story of government regulation of artisanal cheeses. But before we delve into that, tell us a little bit about just what an artisanal cheese is and the taste implications of using raw milk to make it. Sure. So um, I live in the state of Vermont, and about 30 years ago, some very enterprising um, farmers got together and started making artisan cheese, so that would be a cheese that's made on a small scale, usually using milk that is produced on the farm where the cheese is being made, using a lot of European um, old-world techniques like aging on wooden boards and um, using recipes that have been time-tested over centuries. And so what the artisan cheese movement is doing is creating a renaissance of world-class cheese production wow. here in the United States. Okay. And so they're actually using European methods and recipes and then just um, implementing that on their own farms. On their own farms. But what's so interesting, so I'm a food microbiologist. So from a microbiological perspective, the um, various species of bacteria that either are present in the raw milk that's used to make the artisan cheese or microorganisms that are selected during either washing of wash-drying cheeses or aging on wooden boards, those microorganisms impart really unique properties and flavors and textures 
making these cheeses unique to their place of production. Right. It's so analogous to the idea of the terroir for wines. And I hadn't realized until I read your book, actually, that all these different cheeses from Europe have their own appellation, as the French say. And so camembert can only be made in camembert, and parmesan can only be made in parma. Exactly. So that's actually one of the political aspects of um, the well of global trade for cheese, where back in 1992, the European Union decided to protect their traditional products from imitation by countries outside of Europe. And so they came up with the AOC-PDO system. And that became very threatening to um, many industrial cheesemakers outside of the European Union. And um, that's a lot of what the book is is all about, is this, um, you know, industrial versus artisan, traditional versus industrial kind of um, conflict that we're seeing. Yeah, that was a little horrifying to me to see the influence of industry in regulation. So let's let's take a detour and talk about that now because that is a big part of your book. And, you know, as an American, I was shocked, well, maybe not shocked, but offended by the role that the FDA is playing. It seems that they're abandoning scientific information in favor of big corporate push to change the regulations on raw milk cheesemaking. And under the auspice of a safety problem that doesn't exist, and where I got involved in all of this, I've been studying the um, bacterium Listeria monocytogenes for about 37 years. That's the you know primary research that my lab does. And um, we worked closely with the artisan cheese industry and the dairy industry in general in terms of providing scientific information on how to control listeria in dairy processing environments, um, work closely with artisan cheesemakers, helping them manage all kinds of microbiological risks. And the very information that we were sharing with cheesemakers and you know putting into place, the FDA came down with regulations, very stringent microbiological criteria for a non-pathogenic organism, E. coli, regulations so stringent that it was really difficult for um, raw milk cheesemakers to comply with these regulations, except that there's no correlation between the presence of non-pathogenic E. coli and bacterial pathogens. So we started scratching our heads like, why is that in place? Where did this come from? Shortly thereafter came a ban on the use of wooden boards for cheese aging, where there was no outbreak that's directly been linked to the use of wooden boards and cheese aging. And so it just seemed very strange that these regulations were coming down from FDA in the absence of any scientific evidence that um, there was a safety concern with um, how artisan cheese was being made. And and then um, the swabathons that have been conducted for listeria in artisan cheese facilities, again, in Vermont, um, our cheesemakers were managing those microbiological risks um, very, very well. And so all of these FDAs 
actions seemed very curious to us and inconsistent with good principles of science or where microbiological risks really resided. And um, artisan cheese happens to be low risk because there's a lot of cleaning and sanitation that goes on. You can't make good quality cheese from poor quality milk, and you can't make good quality cheese in a contaminated environment. And so I started piecing together a timeline of when these regulatory actions were occurring and what was going on with respect to global trade and this whole um, fight over the protection of cheese names in Europe and the response of the U.S. dairy industry. Now, looking at the timeline in your book, it seems like some of these FDA revisions, especially like the FDA proposing a ban on wooden shelves and cheese aging, is that was in 2014. And the other FDA revision for the E. coli, that was in 2010. So did a lot of these changes come sort of 2010 to 2014 to 2016 timeframe? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, A lot of what was going on at the World Trade Organization and some of the disputes over cheese names, if you look at those events, you know, I broke out regulatory versus trade events, And all of that trade war was happening at the very, very same time. And what's interesting is um, we were pretty confident on the, I mean, what I study. And so I was working with um, cheesemakers in our region saying there is no scientific evidence supporting a ban on the use of wooden boards and cheese aging. And so um, cheesemakers in my state of Vermont got in contact with Congressman Peter Welch, who um, had a staff person actually communicate with the FDA saying, look, our cheesemakers have just invested millions of dollars in wooden boards to age cheese. They're very concerned about um, reports of regulatory activity where the FDA is going to ban the use of wooden boards and cheese aging. So the congressman's office had a written communique with the FDA who wrote back saying yes in March of 2014, saying, yes, wooden boards have never been allowed, and now we're going to enforce that ban. And so they communicated with the cheesemakers saying, we've got some really bad news for you. And so the cheesemakers started communicating with their um, their constituents saying, hey, you better get our cheese now because we're not going to be able to age this product on boards any longer. And there was a lot of um, communication on social media. Then in June, the FDA released a constituent update saying all the media reports that were banning the use of wood and cheese aging are incorrect. We've never said this. And any reports to the contrary are untrue, at which point our Congressman Welch said, wait a second, in March you're telling my staff that you've never allowed the use of wooden boards, and now in June you're telling us that that's not true? Like, who are we supposed to believe? And so what was very curious, in June of 2014, um, FDA's budget was hitting, their appropriations budget was hitting the floor of the House. And so Congressman Peter Welch, Democrat from Vermont, and Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, Republican from Wisconsin, sponsored an amendment 
to FDA's budget that was signed by about 56 members of Congress saying no amount of this appropriation to FDA can be used to enforce a ban on the use of wood and cheese aging. So that's how that issue got resolved. But sad that it has to be politics rather than science, because the science is so clear. And I guess for the benefit of the listeners that don't know much about how cheese is made, we should back up and say that cheese making is a really natural process that's been going on. Humans have been doing this for thousands of years, and it relies on bacteria to ferment the milk products into the stuff we call cheese and that we love. And it has all these different flavors and types because different bacteria contribute these different flavors. Right. Cheese never has been and never will be a sterile product. And so it's dependent on this microbiological activity. And so the challenge for cheesemakers has always been, how do you select for those beneficial organisms? And what's so exciting now with um, the molecular biology tools that we have at our disposal, we can now characterize the members that comprise the microbial communities of cheese. And they're very diverse and very distinct. And many of the technologies that have been used for centuries, even though cheesemakers in the 1700s didn't understand that they were, in fact, selecting for certain organisms, like a cheese like camembert, those, the cheesemaking technology selects for um, a very stable flora that is the same um, microbial composition, whether it's made in France or in the United States, the different species then give the terroir, but it's the same, you know, pretty predominant organisms. And I think that's fascinating from a scientific standpoint that these time-honored techniques are actually doing something scientifically, selecting for these beneficial microorganisms. And that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah, that is. That's a wonderful story about how there's an ecosystem in the cheese, and there's kind of a succession that one microbe will set the stage for the next, and then we end up with a very predictable result, which I'm sure the big industrial producers hate because they think they have everything dialed by regulating everything in their processes. Right. And when they're, you know, the scale um, at which industrial cheese is being produced, it's got to be consistent because of the, exactly. the demand for the products in pizza, for instance. But consumers who are craving artisan cheese want the differences. And so through a lactation, um, the chemical composition of milk in the spring is very, very different than in the fall. And you see changes in um, the microbial communities dependent on the forages that the animals are grazing on and those, you know, chemical changes that just occur naturally with lactation. And it, and it changes the character of the cheese just a little bit. It's nuanced. And it's really exciting to um, see the diversity of products that are being produced in this country. And it's driving a lot of, it's A, keeping a lot of small farms in business in an otherwise dismal dairy economy. But it's also creating um, these wonderful regional products that consumers are celebrating. And so it's just unfortunate to see this regulatory um, 
activity trying to shut down what people have worked really hard to build over the last 30 years. Now, I, I have a question for uh, those people who have, you know, we've, we've all grown up hearing that milk must be pasteurized, always pasteurized. So what, what do we say to someone who's, who asks, how do I know that the harmful E. coli doesn't end up in my cheese if it's used with raw milk? How do I know that doesn't happen um, since there's an unfamiliarity with the use of raw milk? Right. And so that's a really good question for people to ask. And that question was answered by the government of Australia, who conducted a very comprehensive risk assessment because there was um, concern in Australia back in the late 90s. They weren't going to allow um, the raw milk cheese making was not allowed in Australia at that time. But um, Swiss cheeses and um, Parmigiano-Reggiano, Italian grana cheeses could be imported into Australia. And so the question was asked, is there a risk with importing um, Swiss and hard Italian cheeses that are made from raw milk? And so the government of Australia published an almost 300-page scientific risk assessment that said because of the steps in the cheesemaking process of both of those cheese types, the curds are cooked at really high temperatures. So while the cheese starts out with raw milk, during production, you're heating curds at high temperatures for a long period of time. The um, starter cultures or microorganisms selected for in cheesemaking produce acid that drops the pH of the cheese. You're adding salt. So all of those things give you a cheese with a level of safety equivalent to a cheese made from pasteurized milk. And that's all been documented scientifically. Except it tastes much better. (laughs) Right. It tastes fabulous. Now, um, so that's for, you know, Swiss style um, cooked curd cheeses and Italian grana cheeses. The question then comes in, well, are there certain cheeses that have a higher level of risk? Those would be the soft, bloomy rind cheeses. And what's so, so like a camembert or a brie cheese. What's so interesting is if you go to our U.S. Code of Federal Regulations, the um, Part 133 is the 21 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 133, gives the legal description of cheeses that um, cheesemakers have to follow. For the bloomy rind cheeses in our country, those cheeses can either be made from pasteurized milk or aged for 60 days. Aging a soft rind cheese for 60 days only increases the risk. And so our federal regulations really aren't even correct for making that kind of cheese. And when we started dealing with cheesemakers who were aging these cheeses for 60 days, we're like, what are you doing? That That's going to create a really risky product if it happens to get contaminated with listeria. And in fact, in Europe, in France, you can't even sell a camembert beyond 55 days because it's too risky. And so it really shows that um, we we don't have regulations that are really supporting the products that, that we're allowing to be produced and need to put some focus in on that. 
So it sounds like our regulations are in a state of flux. And given that, in the short time that we have remaining, Catherine, what's your opinion about the future of artisanal cheese production in this country? Well, A, I hope it continues. I'm encouraging consumers and scientists alike to be advocates for this industry. You look at the American Cheese Society that has annual meetings held all over the country. 3,000 different cheese varieties are entered in the Best in Show competition. And um, this is, is a future part of the food that we need produced in this country. It's made on a sustainable level. It creates a lot of great jobs in rural communities. And I hope we can all lobby the FDA to respect the science. If we have a regulatory agency that is not using science to make decisions, then we're in big time trouble. Yeah, all of those issues speak to a really great junction between science and society. And so hopefully many of the listeners will lobby for this as well. I certainly will. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Catherine. Thank you. Oh, thank you for your wonderful questions, and it was such a pleasure. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Beth Bennett, with additional contributions from me, Angel Shaw. Maeve Conran engineered. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from third grade students at Cedar Elementary was also contributed. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- Four four seven nine nine one one. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Angel Shang. And I'm Beth Bennett.